right. <laughs> Can you hear me now? And that's the rest of the message. <laughs> Remember that? This is, I'm just thinking earlier, just, yes, I, I love the, the songs that we sing that just proclaim God's name, just how great he is. And we just did that for all three songs today. It's, you know, how, how great is our God, and we did how great is thy faithfulness, and we did how great thou art. And it, it just, I like it so much, because it's not that we, we're reminding God of how great he is, we're reminding ourselves. And once we understand that, everything else just falls into place. And, and I don't know, I, I love that. It's just great. Um, we're going kind of, to start in uh, Matthew chapter 9 today. Uh, cha- we're going to start in chapter 9, 35, so towards the end of chapter 9. And we're going to kind of, we, ha- we have a, a bunch of verses here we're going to go over. We're we'll just kind of go over a few at a time, but... Uh, if you remember last week, we talked about kind of the beginning of the church and how um, the, the spread started with the stoning of Stephen and uh, the, the, three, the three main churches that started out of that and how and Paul came into those churches. And uh, so what we're going to talk about today is, this is, is kind of goes along with that and is part of um, the, the, goes along with my, my series I'm doing is the purpose of the church. And we're going to talk about when uh, sending, sending people. So the church in Antioch, when they got together and they worshipped, and the first thing they did was uh, gather people together. They taught them, and then they sent them. That was uh, Barnabas, that was Saul, and a few other people that was kind of unnamed at the time. So, uh, previously in Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus going on, kind of what we were talking about last week. Uh, he was walking around other towns, he was teaching, he was preaching, he was healing people, just kind of doing the, his ministry, right? That's what we consider his ministry. So, in, let's start reading, and in, in, um, well, before we start reading, I almost forgot. I don't know if some of you remember a few years ago, um, we did this thing at the Louisville Church uh, with Ananiram Judson. Guy dressed up, he sat in front of the church, and he kind of gave Ananiram Judson's um, story. And if you don't know who Ananiram Judson is, he's a, an American missionary, Baptist missionary that went out uh, to modern-day Myanmar, Burma, and uh, did all that stuff. And a couple years ago, I forget when it was, but we, we did that. Um, the guy dressed up. He told Aniram Judson's story, and they started a few colleges, Christian colleges, based on the Judson name and stuff like that. Well, um, Aniram Judson, a couple hundred years ago, wrote a letter to his wife and dad. This is before he was, uh, she was his wife. Um, and we, we heard this letter when he did the story. And if you weren't there, or if you were there, and I want to kind of remind us, it's a letter to Anne's dad requesting permission to marry his daughter. All right? And I just kind of want us to imagine, especially if you're a father with daughters or anything like that, and just imagine if if you're a father with daughters, a prospective son-in-law giving you this letter. It says, I have now to ask, 
whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to hardship and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the danger of the ocean, to, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to, degrada to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent, a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with acclamations of praise, which shall resound to their Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Now, how would you answer that letter? I'll tell you what, Ann's dad said yes. Ann's dad said yes, and about a year later after that letter, it was about you know, 205 years ago or so, uh, they got married, and Ann's dad saw her no more. Ann would eventually have died in the mission field. But the good news of the story is that right now in Myanmar, Burma, there are about 4,000 Baptist churches with over half a million followers of Christ right in the heart of Buddhist country. And we have that to thank for it. And the, the reason I bring that up is it kind of comes into light of the text we're going to go in today. So, let's go to verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, Harv The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest and to, to send out into his harvest. <clears throat> so we, what we're looking at here right now is that when Jesus goes into these cities and into his synagogues, he's looking out into crowds of people. All right? And he says, there's a harvest here. And something needs done. So first, Jesus is looking at the condition of the lost. Right? The condition of the lost. What are the condition of the lost? First, Jesus sees the crowds. Jesus went about the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness. And in verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved to compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep. So he, he sees the multitudes. He sees a bunch of people out here. A whole bunch of people. All right. And he goes in there and he, and he looks at them. And it says he's moved to compassion. The, the word here for compassion is agony. Um, kind of what I 
so he, he, he's moved to agony. Just one of those things where just um, imagine seeing the person you love the most in this world. And you see them in an immense amount of pain and there's nothing you can do about it. And your heart just wants to burst, physically burst for them. That's what Jesus is feeling right here towards these people. He is feeling their suffering. There's not just, uh, there, there's not just people here. There are people in suffering. Right? And at the same time, when he's looking at these suffering people, he's not just seeing temporary suffering. He's seeing, uh, it's not like it's just a disease. He's seeing, he's seeing an eternal separation. If something doesn't happen to change these crowds soon, if they don't know him or follow him anytime soon, they are heading towards a path of eternal destruction. They're heading towards a path of eternal separation from him and the Father, and this drives Jesus to agony, to complete agony. So, so you got to realize, and so what we're doing here, we're seeing, we're seeing the crowds, we're seeing a crowd of people here that need Jesus. Bunch of people. I, at, at this time, there's probably, in Galilee, uh, approximately 400 cities uh, between uh, three million people among the uh, the lot of them, okay. So we see we see their the the crowds. We see their suffering, all right. And then we have to realize their separation. If something doesn't happen soon, these people will go to an eternal hell. These people will be separated completely from Christ, and they're they're like. It says right here, they're like sheep without a shepherd, just wandering sheep, going on without a shepherd, walking all which and every way. And what we're seeing here is a world of sin. And it's not just first century, it's 21st century. So many people today are uh, walking down roads thinking that this will fulfill my soul. That didn't work, let's walk down this road. That didn't fulfill my soul, let's walk down this road. Every road that this world has to offer in this life will lead nowhere. It's all a dead end. All roads to, to pleasures, sex, drugs, everything. It will all lead to nothing but a dead end. So, there's a harvest here. There's these people here that are suffering because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They're engulfed in their sin. And in that, they're going to be separated from Christ. So there's a harvest here that needs done, right? We don't sleep during the harvest, do we? As a rural community, when you drove a grain truck for so many years, how much sleep did you get during harvest time when you drove a grain truck? went to bed late and you got up early, didn't you? Yeah. That's what it is. You wake up early 
you go to bed late. Next morning, you wake up early again. There's an urgency here. You've got to get it done. Jesus is saying the same thing. There's a harvest here. The, the main purpose, the, the, the main goal is to get out there and to reap what is sold. So, so that, that's what we're seeing here. We're, we're, we're seeing that we're trying to, we, we need to, to, to see the crowds and we see the suffering and realize the separation and all of this, there, there's a harvest there and that just drives Jesus to complete agony. So what more should we, as people who have this same Christ in our hearts, see the, how should we see the crowds. The crowds that are outside here, that don't go to church, that we see engulfed in all the sin, that we see the suffering, we see the separation. How should we feel towards those people with the same Christ in our hearts? Interesting question. The next drives us into chapter 10 there's going to be a commission of Christ. And before I get into chapter 10, I just want to kind of say that uh, there's some verses in here that we're going to be kind of surprised when we realize that this is the Jesus that we are serving. There's going to be some verses in here that, that's just going to kind of take us off. And it's going to be easy for some people to say, it's going to be easy for some people to say, well, what Jesus really meant was this. What Jesus was talking to was this. And, and of course, there are, some, there, there are some verses in here that, you know, Jesus talks, are specifically talking to those disciples at that particular time. Like, we're going to read here that uh, Jesus commanded them saying, don't go into the Gentiles, only go to the Jews. You know, obviously Jesus isn't telling all disciples of all time that because he says in Matthew chapter 28 to go to all nations, to all people. But at the same time, there are other verses in here that do apply to all Christians, all disciples of all time. And so that's just, if you see me kind of pacing around like this, it's because my uh, little Fitbit here, I get a nice little red dot if I make 250 steps within an hour. So I just might just be sitting here doing this. But anyway, just ignore that. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So we got a, we got a commission. We got a commission from Christ. Let's, let's start uh, chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles were these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and his John and John his brother, Philip and, Bartholo Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So we see Jesus going up to his disciples, calling them apostles, giving them authority. The first thing I kind of want to look at here is chapter 10, verse 1. When he says, and when he had called his 12 disciples over to him. When he called his 12 disciples to him. This word is more associated 
called. The called word is most associated with summoned. Like a um, military commander summoning his men. A military, does, does a military commander make suggestions? Not usually. Not usually. Well, if you guys want to come up here and, uh, okay, great. Uh, I, I mean, the barracks need clean, the bathrooms need cleaned, and I don't know, something, do something, whatever you want to do. Let me know if it's done. I'll see you later. Is that how it was in the Army? I'm assuming not. No. I was never in the Army, but... You do this. Right. So at the same time, this is the word that Jesus is using as if he was a military commander talking to these apostles. This is what you're going to do. These are commands. Okay? So he gives them power to do these things. And, to, and then verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles or enter into, uh, into the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the, the, the key thing here is the lost, the, the, sheep of the, the lost sheep in the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Let's stop there for a second. So what is Jesus telling his folks to do here? Is he, is he telling him to, um, hey, while you're picking up toilet paper at Walmart, mention my name a couple times? No. Not at all. He's saying go to the lost. Straight to them. Then what is he said? Heal the sick, cleanse the leopards, raise the dead, cast out demons. So there's a specific crowd he's looking for here. Right? Heal the sick. Jesus is telling these folks to go to the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Um, previous throughout all of Scripture, pretty much, we learned that the, the lepers are unclean people. Leprosy is a disease that attacks the central nervous system and ends up breaking down your, your skin and you just look gross. I don't know how it works. I've never seen anyone with leprosy, but I've seen it portrayed on TV and that was pretty bad. But, so, at the time, lepers were seen as unclean. If you were uh, early... Jewish law required you, if you had leprosy, if you saw someone coming towards you, you were to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that they knew to avoid you, right? So, Jesus is saying, go to the sick, go to the dirty, go to the dying, raise the dead, go to the dying, go to the dead, and raise them, and cast out demons. So he's saying, he's targeting a specific group. He's not, going, he's not saying going, go to the people who are easy to talk to. Not go to current Christians. Not go to the, the easy group. He's saying go to the folks that are hard to get. 
They, they go to the folks that are hard to get. And what does he say to tell those people? The same thing that John the Baptist preached and the same thing that Jesus preached his entire ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Right? He says that in verse 7, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then heal the sick, heal the lepers, raise the dead. So, and after that, so we, now, now after we, we have seen the, the, the lost, we have seen the conditions of the lost, we've seen the crowds, we've seen that they're suffering, we've seen that they're, they're separated. So then, I think I, I forgot to mention this earlier. In verse 38, he tells the disciples to pray. He doesn't say, here's the harvest, here's the need, go. He says, here's the harvest, here's the need, pray. Pray that they send out laborers. And then he commissions them to go in chapter 10. Go to the lost. Go to the sick. Go to the dead, the unclean. Go to the demon-possessed. So he's telling them to go to these hard-to-go places. And then he says, provide, verse 9, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, for bag, for, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. So don't bring excess. Don't bring any money. Now, it's kind of hard to imagine for us today traveling without at least the backup, right? I mean, they always say to put in your carry-on bag at least one day's worth of junk, you know, a pair of pants, a pair of clothes, and stuff like that, and your toiletries, put in your, your carry-on just in case your luggage gets lost in transit, right? So we're, we're always prepared, right? We're going somewhere. We take stuff with us. We take money with us. We take uh, a spare tire, a jack, you know, lug nut wrench. Everywhere we go, we're prepared. Now imagine Jesus telling you, get rid of that stuff. You're going to a faraway place. Not even far away. Just say it's Effingham. Go to Effingham, treat the lost over there, but don't take any money, no gas money, don't take anything extra with you. Right? So what is he telling you there? He's telling you to trust in him. The Lord will provide. Trust his provisions. So he's not going to send you out into the harvest field without his provisions. So he's sending, he, he sees the compassion, uh, he sees the lost. He sends the disciples. He tells them to trust in him. And then this is where it gets a little more, this is the Savior that we're following. Verse 11, Jesus says, Whatever city or town you enter, inquire who is in it. And who is in it 
is worthy and stay there until you go out. And then you go into the house, hold and greet. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. For surely I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will devour you up into the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before the governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry how, about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks within you. <clears throat> Did we catch that? Don't, don't miss this. Jesus is sending these folks out. He, he's seeing the condition of the lost, and he's saying, there's a harvest out here. There's urgency. Let's go out. Let's do this thing. I give you power to, to uh, heal people, to raise the dead. I am with you to go to these people. Then he says, you are sheep, and I am sending you out into the wolves. Uh, what is the purpose of the shepherd? To guard the sheep from the wolves. And Jesus is the good shepherd telling his sheep to go into the wolves. Just, just kind of imagine this. Uh, sheep, they're weird animals. I should say at the least. Even the slightest sound would send them into a frenzy, Right? You can't let, like in the wintertime, you can't really let them out all that often. You have to keep them in a heated barn because they're wussies. They get sick way too easy. You know? They, they're dumb animals. And to, say, and, and to say that you're a sheep that are walking right into a wolf pack, you're going to be like, that sheep is even dumber than I thought. Right? They're going to devour that, that sheep to pieces. But this is exactly what Jesus is telling us to do. Jesus is telling us that we need to be out in that wolf pack. So, sheep in the midst of wolves. But also at the same time, be wise as serpents. Be harmless as doves. So how can you be as dumb as a sheep, smart as a serpent, and at the same time harmless as a dove? You're trying to cover three different intellectuals here, right? So you're, you're supposed to be dumb, smart, and peaceful at the same time. How do we do that? He tells us there. We don't, we want to be in the, we won't want to be in the wolves as sheep, but as smart as servants and harmless as doves. Do not give the wolves, the people that you're going out into, a reason to berate you. Do not give them anything against you. So you are out there in the wolf pack. They will devour you. They will try to pick apart each and every 
thing they can find out about you just to tear down your character. Jesus is telling these people not to give them that ammo. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you to the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake. He goes on to say, all these things, they will deliver you up. He says, he doesn't say, but if they deliver you up, they say, but when they deliver up. Jesus is already assuming it's going to happen. Do not worry about what, how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour. So you will be persecuted for your beliefs. Jesus isn't saying if or it might come, it might not, here's what you should do just in case. No. He's saying it's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. You will be delivered to councils. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You'll be brought before governors which in this day and age we will be arrested and brought before the courts for Jesus' name's sake. It's going to happen. Jesus promises it. How about that for a pep talk? Hey guys, why don't you go out here and do some work for me and... Uh, by the way, while you're out the door, you're probably going to get killed for that. Good luck. You still going to do it? Right. <laughs> it's, that's hard to say, isn't it? So, but at the time when all that is happening, we, we always worry about what are we going to say? What are we going to do? What are we going to say? I don't know what to say to these people. And Jesus says it's going to be given to you. The our relationship with Christ is equal to our uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's proportional. Oh, okay. The danger of our life is proportional to our relationship to Christ. The more danger you have in your life, more than likely the better relationship to Christ you have. Now, what does that mean? All right, so the, the closer we are to Christ, the more likely we are to do his work. The more likely we are to go into the harvest and do these things. We're going to go to the lost. We're going to, we are going to, without even second thought, go into the wolves. We're going to go into places that are going to be persecuted, that are going to be dangerous, that are hard to reach, um, a while back ago, we watched a sending ceremony from the uh, International Mission Board. They sent out, I forget how many it was now, but it was a great big handful of folks that went to unreached people groups of the world. It's the first time the International Mission Board has done this since they've actually uh, minimized the amount of missionaries they had. And a lot of these folks, what they were doing is they were going up on stage and they were uh, telling their story, where they're from, uh, what their name is, 
and what church they were coming from, right? And then where they're going and what they're going to be doing there. A vast majority of these people had to have a, I don't know how they did it on the stage, but they did the lighting to where it blacks out. All you could see was kind of their, the top of their head and their shoulders. Because they were going to places, they, they were given that and they were given a fake name to present to the crowd because those people there are going to places in the world that are dangerous. They will be persecuted. They will be killed for Jesus' name's sake. And they're going out into that. They're not just taking themselves, but they're taking their families, their wife and kids. Because Jesus is telling them to go. And so our, our, the danger in our life is proportional to the relationship of, of Christ. And some people hear that and say, well then, what I'm going to do is I'm going to find the most dangerous place in the world, go there, and be a martyr, and be a heroic martyr. Come on, that's just selfish. That's just selfish. That's not what Christ is telling us to do. Christ instead is telling us to take a blank check and set it on the table. I just hit the microphone and just set it on the table. I remember I remember the first time I ever heard of a blank check. I was a small kid, maybe Isaac's age, maybe a little bit older. There's a movie that came out called Blank Check. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it. Well, what happens is this, this kid does, a, does some work for a uh, multi-million dollar man or whatever, a very rich man, and the guy signs his name to a check, gives it to the kid thinking it's cute. Go ahead and write any number on there. Don't worry about it. Kid's smart, and he wrote several zeros at the end of his number. And now the kid's a multimillionaire. And, the, you know, he comes up and he buys big houses and all stuff like that. He goes as the name Macintosh, and his parents don't even know about it. It's, it's, a, it's a cute movie. That's the first time I've ever heard of a blank check. Someone giving you a check and telling you, you can go ahead and write whatever number you want on that check, and I will pay it. We, what, what Jesus is trying to tell us here in these verses is that what we need to do as a church as a, as a people, is to take a blank check of our lives and say, God, it's all on the table. As if an individual is giving someone a blank check, telling that individual, other individual, everything in my bank account is in your hands at this point. We're telling God everything in our lives is in your hands. And this is what I pray for everybody in this church, in Strasburg Baptist Church, I, I, I pray that this church is a ascending base. That people will actually go out into places such as Effingham, Shelbyville, Mattoon, not just that, but Chicago, St. Louis, New York City, whatever other North American cities are in the, in the United States or what other countries there are in the world. That that we as a, as a church will put that blank check on the table and say, God, do you want me to go to 
Effingham? Do you want me to go to Shelbyville? Do you want me to go to Chicago, New York City? you want me to go to Myanmar, Burma, such as our friend Judson here? Everything on the table. Do you want me to, to sell everything I have and give it to the poor? Everything is on the table. Just pray for something like that to just to, to happen here and that maybe Jesus will prick our hearts a little bit to help us to to become that, that sending base from here and everyone will just go here and go there. And sometimes when I when I pray that prayer I worry a little bit that Jesus would actually answer that prayer and everyone would leave and I'll be stuck here in this room by myself. <laughs> and but that that's what we're what we're looking for here. We're looking for people to go into the harvest. We're looking for people to be missionaries. Jesus called us all in Matthew chapter 28 to go to all nations, to make disciples of all nations. He called us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which is just another paraphrase of that great commission to go spread the king, the news of the kingdom to uh, Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, we have it to where we, we are supposed to, 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 to see the lost and, and their conditions, and, and we see that we're supposed to pray to send out laborers, and then we see that Jesus wants us to be the answer to that prayer. That kind of goes back to what we, we talked about last week. If you remember, Saul oversaw the stoning of Stephen, went through most of the, and went through uh, the Middle East there, persecuting Christians, taking people out of their homes, arresting them, uh, killing them, all because they worshiped Jesus. And then what did he do? He went to the church of Antioch, became a disciple of Christ. He, Holy Spirit then sends him and Barnabas out into the mission field. So now he's doing the very thing that he was doing at the beginning. And if we remember in Acts chapter 4, there's a prayer. The, the disciples are praying a prayer to God about the persecution. Not, not that the persecution should end, but that the persecution should give them strength to spread the church. And then three chapters later, the stoning of Stephen happens. Then, then four more chapters after that, new churches start because of that. And not just two chapters after that, Saul is a missionary. So Saul became the answer to that prayer, even though he was the one causing that persecution. At the same time, Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 and 10 here, he wants us to be the answer to our prayers. And Jesus answers prayers like this. So, we... Oh, I hear voice or noises over there. Okay, so we talk about uh, the.
persecution here. They will, you, they will be hated for Jesus' name's sake, um, but he who endures till the end is saved. When, he, when they persecute in the city, flee to another. Assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. It is not above, for a disciple is not above his teacher, a servant not above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master to the house, Beazel, uh, called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call a house a household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will be revealed and hidden will not be unknown. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and whatever you hear in, in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but can not kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus is starting talking about, he's talking about when you go out into the pack of wolves, they will persecute you. And that do not let the fear tempt you at that time we're going to see all this coming at us we're going to be afraid we don't want to go out there because they will kill us so fear is tempting us and jesus is telling his his apostles right here to not let that fear tempt you and he uses the uh the sparrows as a example Sparrows are so nominal that they can be sold for just a couple of copper coins, right? But yet none of them falls apart from the Father's will. So what more are you than them? What more, how much more value do you have besides a sparrow. He goes on to say that, that don't fear those that kill you. Don't fear these people. They're only going to kill you. Once again, how about that for a pep talk? <laughs> if, uh, let's go back to the army, army commander deal. If you're, you're in the army and let's say you get called into action, and the commander goes, don't worry, you're only going to die. How are you going to feel going into that? Real encouraged. Real encouraged, right? And Jesus is saying, what are you scared about? They're only going to kill you. But the, the encouraging part is that Jesus is telling them they can only kill your body. Where your reward is is your soul in heaven. There, there's a, another verse in this vicinity that talks about what does it profit a man that he should gain the whole world but lose his soul? So if we let fear tempt us and we've run away from folks that may kill us for the name of Jesus, what does it profit us? We have no profit in that. 
because we lose our souls. And it's not just our souls we're losing. Think about all these people that we just heard about in Matthew chapter 9. The multitudes of people that came to Christ who are suffering, who are separated from Christ. They, they will live out that suffering. They will live out that, that separation from God all the way until their death. And now, it's no longer just a couple hundred cities and just a few million people. It's now, a rough estimate is that we have 7 billion people in this world. 7 billion people. And the, the liberal estimate is that a third of those people are Christians. And that's just people who are saying that they're Christian. There's a lot of people who, uh, you know, just mark Christian or say they're Christian even though they may not really be followers of Christ. But let's just assume real quick that all one-third of those people are Christian. That leaves four and a half billion people, billion with a B, people in this world that are heading to a path of eternal separation from Jesus. This is not comforting. And the more that we, that we sit idly by and wait, that just as we talked about last week, the purpose of the church is not to sit and wait for the end to come. The purpose of, of the church is to keep people out of hell. And the more that the church sits idly by and waits for the end to come, 4.5 billion people are in hell. Jesus tells us that we need to go to these people. He, he doesn't just suggest it. He doesn't just say, well, while you have free time. He doesn't say, go to Walmart, pick up some toilet paper, and then maybe, I don't know, pray in public for a second. Jesus commands us as a military commander commands his troops go to the lost go to the sick go to the dirty go to these people that are hard to get to make this your priority in life he tells us to pray for people who are going to do that Then he commands our churches to be the place that sends those people. So Jesus is comforting us in this passage, telling us that all these folks are going to do is kill us. He is far more greater than they and he can save our souls, or he could send us to hell. Second thought. I heard a, uh, I think it was a radio show one time, someone called in, it was a Christian radio show, and someone called in and says, I just don't believe in God because I don't understand how a loving God can send people to hell. You know what that radio um, speaker, dude, whatever their title is anymore, whatever he said, you know what he said? 
That was one of my favorite responses to that question. God isn't sending these people to hell. They're doing a perfectly good job of that themselves. So we deny Christ and we go to hell, knowing perfectly well that Jesus is there for us. We deny Christ when we disobey his commands. When we know that Jesus is, is God, Jesus is deity, and we talked about that in Sunday school this morning with Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is God. And he's not just providing us suggestions. He's not just providing us something that we can do on our free time. This is the main purpose. And so when we disobey these commands, we deny Christ. And when we deny Christ, we are rejecting him. And what does the Bible say to those who reject Christ? It's not pretty. Not pretty at all. So, and that, and that kind of goes with our, our relationship to Christ. If we are closer to our relationship with Christ, everything else falls into place. With a, if our relationship to Christ is spot on, everything we do is in Him and for Him and through Him. He, everything we do as far as picking out a, an outfit for the day, who we should marry, what we should eat for that afternoon, where we should go to buy that toilet paper. <laughs> I keep mentioning throughout the entire thing. I keep saying that because I need to get toilet paper. <laughs> anyway, all these things falls into place because of our relationship to Christ. We did a, um, a uh, seminar one time, me and Emily did, uh, with M Dr. Emerson Edricks. He was a, uh, his mission is to bring a Christian light to marriage. You know, um, and he brings up the Bible verses where it talks about wives should respect their husbands and husbands should love their wives. And it's a, it's a seminar called Love and Respect. And what he says is that when we make Christ the center of our lives, we make Christ the the main institution of what our lives are about, the main purpose of our lives, then it's no longer us that love each other. It's now that I love Christ, and my love for Christ is reflecting on my family. The same thing goes when Jesus talked about, if you do not hate your father and mother, your wife and children, and yes, even yourself. You cannot be my disciple. Right here. It says that, just later on, in verse 34, it says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on this earth. I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Hold on. Just think about that as a Christmas Eve sermon. 
peace on earth, not. <laughs> Jesus has come to bring not peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will lose it. And in Luke's version of this set of verses says, he who does not hate his father, mother, daughter, and yes, even himself, what cannot be not my disciple. So we see Jesus telling us that if we don't hate our wives and our children, our father, mother, ourselves, that we can't be as our disciples. So what is, is Jesus teaching us love here? Or is he teaching us hate? My personal explanation is that Jesus is teaching us love through a relationship with him. Jesus says that if I am not center of your life, you are going to love your family more than you love me and therefore making them God over me. So you're saying that, he's saying that you cannot be his disciple because you do not actually love him. On the contrary, if Christ is center of your life, if Christ is in center of everything that you do, it's like I said before, everything else falls into place. The, the love you have for Christ is reflecting on your family. The love you have for Christ is reflecting on everything else around you. It drives you to do the things you do. Your love for Christ will then urge you to keep his commands. If you love someone more than anything else in the world, you want everything to do to make that person happy. You want everything in the world to do what they want to do. Make the center of your world around that individual. Right? So when we love Christ more than we love everything else, that's that all falls into place. Our, our relationship to Christ is proportional to our danger in our lives because then we, if we love Christ that much, then we put that blank check on the table and we say, God, Jesus, you write anything you want on that check. If it's my house you want, it's yours. If you want me to pack up me and my family and go to Burma, we're there. If you want me to allow this man to marry my daughter who promised me that I will never see her ever again. Christ, if you want that, it's done. Think about it. If we lose our daughter into the mission field of Christ, 
dies there. If we lose the comfort of our house and everything in it, our cars, our TVs, our hobbies, computers, whatever else we have in our house that we just hold so dearly to, that nowadays we consider a necessity of life. And we say, it's yours, God. Sell it and give the money to the poor. It's not just a question of are we willing to do it. The question is, are we going to do it when God calls us to? Because we can be willing all day long to do whatever you want me to do. But when it comes down to it, the, the situation might be a little different. God at any time can call us to, at any time can call either one of us to sell all our possessions and give them to the poor. Jesus at any time can call either one of us to, to leave here and be a missionary somewhere else. To start something else, somewhere else. God might be calling church plants in this church to come in and to, to learn and to teach, and to, to learn and, and become a disciple and grow and strengthen, and then to leave this church to start one somewhere else. Talked about last week that the purpose of the local church is to gather in people, to grow them, to teach them in the ways of the Lord, and to send them back out into the field. Is that going to be the, the purpose of our church today? As we sing our song of hymn, hymn, our hymn of invitation, number 288, I, I, I love this hymn. I say this every time. Because it just tells us that our, we're, we're, we're promising ourselves a relationship to Christ so close that wherever he goes, Wherever he leads us, we will follow. 